0: I'm just consistent with this i think the kind of science i'll be doing like 20 years from now will be way better just by the fact that i'm taking a little bit of time away from science of counterintuitive you're like taking time away from the lab to grow but by the fact that you're growing you're actually gonna be able to stay in the game longer and be much better skilled wise intellectual wise things like that you know because all good science starts with good ideas and i think if you cultivate your mind in such a way and have ways of growing intellectually you can actually engineer a system in such a way where you can Consistently generate ideas and know that you're going to consistently generate better ideas across time And as long as you have enough space in your schedule to act upon the best of those ideas consistently That's like an algorithm to just becoming a, the best scientist you could be for as long as possible So once I realized the value of that and night had to see sort of forcing on that at me initially But then after that me actually intentionally creating space you started to welcome it started yeah. to welcome it. Yes my name is Vidal Arroyo, and I'm a member of the 2022 Knight-Hennessey cohort, doing a PhD
1: in biophysics. I imagine a world where work is art. Welcome to the Imagine a World podcast from knight Hennessy Scholars. We are here to give you a glimpse into the knight Hennessy Scholar community of graduate students spanning all seven Stanford schools, including business, education, engineering, humanities, law, medicine, and sustainability. In each episode, we talk with scholars about the world they imagine and what they are doing to bring it to life.
2: Today we're speaking with Vidal Arroyo, a PhD student in biophysics. During our conversation, you'll hear Vidal's experience as a first-gen college student, exploring biophysics, poetry, and music, managing and coping with depression, making dad jokes, and so much more. hey what's up y'all welcome to another episode of the imaginal world podcast i'm your co-host willie thompson hey that's willie 20... <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> you know what? y'all know who we are at this point i'm T- i'm not taylor i'm willie yeah that's taylor i'm taylor yep and we are joined by a very special guest today in vidal arroyo you already heard the imaginal world statement but vidal how you doing, doing
1: welcome good, to the imaginal world i'm
2: good thank you for asking and of course we were having a lot of pre episode conversation, Taylor. What was the question you were going to ask that I so rudely interrupted before we started? Oh no, that's okay. We were talking about hair because we were so impressed by your goatee this
1: afternoon, Willie. Oh, I thought we were talking about your beard and your hair initially. Well, I uh, mean, you know, it got to my beard and hair because it is, you know, there's a lot of it. It It's nice. (laughs) But I was about to ask Vidal, like, you know, I think the first photo I saw of you, you had like a pompadour thing going on. Yeah, that's what it was. And it was like really impressive. I had no idea. You have like on your Night Hennessy photo, you have a swanky suit and a yeah yeah, 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 and have you had a lot of like hairstyle changes over the years
0: yeah well you know i gotta this is a funny story because okay so growing up so my parents my dad's from spain my mom's from mexico yeah okay and uh they both have beautiful hair. My mm. like beautiful red hair. My okay. dad still full head of hair. He's like 50 something. Lucky. Yeah. Crazy. Wow. Great, great genetics, great genetics. And growing up, they were always big on us, like growing out our hair. Like oh. school. Oh, look at that. Yeah. I used to have hair looking like Taylor, like looking like a little lion. You know what I'm <laughs> Like a little full on, full on that. main status. No beard, but a little yellow. Yeah, yeah, you already, you already know. You already know. And then I think like starting in high school. So I started wrestling in high school. And okay. like that wasn't flying. Unfortunately, with wrestling. You have to put your hair in like one of those nets,
2: yeah, like a for, like a fishnet,
0: like a kind of a fishnet thing, like kind of wrapping over, so it's not getting in the way when you wrestle. And I just wasn't about to do that, so that's when I start, you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. I just wasn't the vibe. It wasn't the vibe. So I did like shorter hair up until yeah, maybe out of college. Then I started growing a little bit longer. I think the Pompadour thing like made sense at the time. You know, when that man, my hair just grew way too fast. Okay. And when I moved out here. I'm from South Orange County and the haircuts down there are like pretty cheap. Maybe like, you know, thirty bucks for twenty five yeah, bucks for a good barber. Yeah. Oh, Up here to find a good barber. What?
2: Dude. Huh? I know. What? It's wild. It's wait, wild. About, it's quite expensive. Yeah, 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 First yeah. off, you said 25, 30 bucks for a haircut. That's cheap. That That's with tip, too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: That's
1: cheap. Yeah. yeah. That's like, that's it's what, what I, I, I could pay that in Louisiana. Yeah. That's, that's cheap. Yes. That's, yeah. That's what I consider to be cheap. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I got to take out of Georgia. Yeah, <laughs> it's the long cheap. hair, man. It's the long hair. Really? But like, how even you, in Louisiana, I would pay 25 bucks for a haircut. $25 for a long haircut. I it's got to be inflation.
2: It's got to be inflation. Yeah. Well, I don't have hair any. Well, I don't have hair up top, but my haircut's like haircut 15 bucks, now.
0: Yeah. I think. Also, part of it too is I also had a good barber down there. Shout okay. out to my oh. boy gusto if you're listening to this. Oh, why not? You know, he's doing we'll put thing. him in the show notes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we could tag him or something, but yeah. not a good barber. And that's part of it too is like when you go to a good barber, you have a good conversation with them. Oh, yeah, that's the whole experience, you know what I'm saying? But it's yeah, a relationship. yeah, it's a relationship, it's a relationship. Yeah. yeah, when I came out here, you know, the barber was fine, it wasn't like the conversation was okay, but like the prices just doubled, you know what I mean? double really?
2: Yeah, so like 50 60 bucks, like 50 haircut. 60
0: bucks with tick now, so. My hair grows so fast that I would have to get it cut like every two weeks or something crazy. So mm. I'm now looking at this like, all right, are we about to budget a hundred bucks a month just for haircuts? I just wasn't feeling it. So I started to shave my head. Yeah, it's funny. I'm actually trying to grow it out now. So you guys are kind okay. of like the awkward phase. Yeah. Okay. I, mean, I don't
2: think it's awkward No, no, it's, it's, it's a nice, no, it's nice, a nice line. line. It's, it's a little a...
0: awkward for me, but uh, like, oh, okay. it's, it's a little longer. It's a little longer. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah Wait, but... it's awkward because it's longer? Yeah, because I'm used to like either it's gotta be like kind of like close to skin, like real, real short. Oh. Like this, I kind of feel like I'm a Muppet. You know what I mean? It's like kinda like you got like really? a good centimeter. Just of half their centimeter. Spuzz? For me, for me personally. Oh, interesting. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. It looks good on you. Yeah. No, no, I appreciate it. I yeah. think it's also just kind of got that like good round noggin. So just <laughs> and it all grows sort of equidistant, right? So you're, you're, it's like your head just oh. keeps getting on bigger, right? But I'm actually trying to grow it out like you, bro. Like mm. yeah, try to see if I get that main back because okay. then I can, can do save it. on haircuts, but then also. What I realized with this thing okay. was that since my hair grew back so fast, right. I would have to shave it like every other day.
1: I see. I see. Okay.
0: And I was like, okay, now I'm no longer spending, you know, hundred yeah. bucks a month. I'm spending 20 another. minutes every other day to yeah. shave my head. I'm like, this is also dumb. You know, so.
2: Okay. We're still searching. We're still searching for that equilibrium. For the happy medium. Happy yeah. medium, yeah. And what are you going to do about the beard and mustache? Are you going to let that grow?
0: I'm going to try to see. I think I used okay. to do like a clean shave, but again, it just, it likes to grow. And there's some interesting colors down there. I mean, my mom's, like I said, my mom's a redhead. Yeah. The red shows up in the beard. And I feel like people are like, if I didn't wear a beard, people wouldn't know my mom's a redhead. Not saying that, like, yep. you know, I need to wear a beard for people to know my mom's a redhead. But, you know, it's like yeah. her genetic trait. I think it's kind of cool, you know? <laughs> so, like, might as, yeah. well, might as well flex. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, look, we're really excited to have you on today for the pod. You have an amazing imaginal world statement, as all of our guests do. But before we get into that imaginal world statement, we'd like to know the world you were born into and have experienced thus far. With that being said, where are you from and what was your journey here?
0: As far as where I come
2: from. So from
0: Southern California, I was born in San Clemente. So have you guys ever been down to SoCal? Yeah, I spent a
1: little time in LA. Yeah,
0: a little time in LA. Okay, okay. I've been
2: on one trip to LA, that's about it.
0: So Orange County is north of San Diego,
1: Mm -hmm. south
0: Mm -hmm. of Los Angeles. Yep. And it feels a little bit kind of 50-50 of both. Okay, But also depending on where you're at. In Orange County, it can feel more like LA okay. or more like uh, San Diego. It's you know, okay. sort of like a gradient. Where I was born in Sacramento is South Orange County. And I still grew up in South Orange County. So it's more like the beachy side. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad worked at the skateboarding company. My mom was a, was a dancer. So like, yeah, pretty, I, I don't know. I don't
1: want to say stereotypes. That's, that's kind of very cool.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it's yeah. chippy. It's hard to have stereotypes in Orange County because it's so diverse. Mm-hmm. But like, I would say definitely the skateboarding thing was like pretty on track of like, yeah, you're definitely
1: from, from okay. you know, California
0: okay. at least, but Orange County like specifically. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, I grew up there. And uh, yeah, honestly, like what got me to Stanford was science, but I didn't discover science until like college. Like when I was a little kid, I was oscillating between wanting to be a musician Mm. and like wanting to like go to the military. Cause San Clemente is really close to Camp Pendleton, which is where a lot of like Marines train, Navy SEALs train. So like growing up, I was like, Oh, it'd be cool to be a, Navy
1: SEAL or be Marine, join know. the Marine band.
0: Yeah, okay. and if that doesn't work out, you know, try to start a band. That's sort of like right. oh, my, okay. oh wow oh my, conditions. Talk about two, was, ends, you know? Know. Two, two ends, I know, of a
1: spectrum. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think, I think uh, science. I sort of found a happy medium between the two of like hmm. someone that's kind of gritty, but then also someone
1: that's creative. <laughs> okay, you know? gritty yeah. and creative. Yeah. I like that description. I was wondering how you were going to swing that. That's, yeah, that's yeah, 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 yeah. I still think it's inside me a little bit, you know, but sort of flexing out in different ways. I'm curious. About the music part, what what are your roots there? I know that your grandfather
2: was a blues musician, am I right? Yeah,
0: I definitely lucked down the genetic lottery there. Okay, yeah. so so I my mean, grandp- the
2: hair, the music. I mean, bro, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's just, <laughs> yeah, genetic yeah. jackpot, bro.
0: Unfortunately, my my grandpa he was balding, so he didn't get the hair and the music. <laughs> you know, hopefully, I can keep both intact. <laughs> right. You know yeah, right. what I mean? Yeah, he was a blues musician and actually pastor, and he was based down in, in like Upper San Diego. Okay, but also lived in like Temecula, Murrieta, which is more like inland SoCal. You know, I think just growing up, I, he was just like my role model. I just thought he was like mm. the coolest dude. You know, he'd always wear leather jackets to church. And I was like, dude, this, this guy out here is wearing leather jackets to church. Wow, like, that's what a, what a rebel. To, you know what I mean? he had, it's also funny. He had this particular leather jacket. It's not like a biker jacket, it's okay. kind of like a, it feels like an old man 70s leather jacket. Okay. But he would always rock it. It was like his favorite jacket. And I, yeah, I just looked up to him and thought it'd be cool to be a musician. But do you know, to be honest, um, I didn't like playing my instrument. Like, I didn't like. Which was? I started on guitar. So okay. Actually, well, bass guitar and then guitar. Okay. But, okay. Yeah. But for me, what it was, I didn't like the practicing part of it. I liked making music. Sure. I liked fiddling on it. I liked, you know, listening to a song and trying to dance in between the notes. But yeah, as far as actually like looking at sheet music and, you know, practicing. Sure.
1: Like, I was just like, yeah, I'm like, this isn't for me. Have You heard the joke about uh, guitar players and sheet music? Nah. Well, you know, there's one way to make a guitar player be quiet. Put a piece of sheet music.
0: <laughs> Okay, so maybe that just means I'm a guitarist, you know,
1: <laughs> not not a musician,
0: but, you know, that's neither here nor there. So this was, like, up until middle school, I was thinking these two things. The military wasn't out of the picture, but, like, also the military for me was, like, all right, I should probably do that if, like, anything else I try, like, doesn't fall through, you know. Okay. Just because I was still—there's still a lot of things I needed to explore. I wasn't one of those people that, like, I knew— the military was the only thing I could do that make me happy. So, yeah, yeah when I went to high school, kind of what the catalyst for me of discovering science was I started wrestling, actually, joining the wrestling team. You know, I grew up doing martial arts, but didn't do any sports before that. And the motivation at the time was just that, you know, I was an eighth grader living his best life, you know, getting a little husky, playing beating games all day, like kind of <laughs> do my thing. You know what I mean? Okay. And uh, I was kind of like, you know what? I don't think this is sustainable. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to just play video games all day and whatever. I kind of want to like see what I'm capable of. So that sort of was the impetus for joining the wrestling team. And mm-hmm. yeah, things kind of just steamrolled from there. Yeah. But wait, what's the yeah. connection between, between wrestling, wrestling and, and science? Yeah. That was, the <laughs> yeah. Okay. This is how it rolled out. So I joined the wrestling team and my first year I joined it. I was like 170 pounds, little to no muscle. Just again, live, live my best life. And by the end of it, I was like 130 and this is also like not weight cutting. This is like 40 pounds of fat loss, like in the first year um, of muscle. maybe a little bit of muscle mass, but mostly fat. And I just saw my body change mm-hmm. and then my confidence changed as a result of that too. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I was like, I wasn't, you know, genetically destined to be chubby. I just was lazy. You know what I mean? And like once I sort of realized like how much my body changed, I just became really fascinated with the human body, fascinated what it's capable of. And I think that naturally, you know, I started becoming more interested in science stuff. And uh, I had a lot of athlete friends who wanted to become physical therapists. That's sort of what I thought like, oh, there's a connection for this to spores. There's a connection for this to the body. Mm. And so sort of due to like positive peer pressure, like they motivated me to apply to college. College wasn't on my radar be- before that because oh, well, yeah. none of my family went to college. Like like I said, I lucked out on the music lottery, but I wouldn't say I lucked out on the like educational pedigree <laughs> yeah, so, lottery, okay, you know? Yeah, so okay. once they said like, oh, you want to become PT? Yeah, you should go apply to college. I was like, all right. So this was like junior year of high school. Yeah. Up to this point, I didn't really try in school. So I think if I would have gone back, I probably would have tried to just try harder in school earlier because it just would have opened up more doors. But things turned out I was able to go to local school near where I was, Chapman, and, you know, I was able to find a way to, like, make it work financially for me, too. Yeah. You know, which is really big, being first generation, not having college funds saved or things like that. So, yeah, I basically decided to go to Chapman 30, 40 minutes from where I was. And I decided to commute by train because I didn't have a car at the time. Okay. So that was my basically go for the next four years. Was Every every time you went to campus. Every single day was commute by train. I had a little, little routine worked out with my mom where she worked really close to where the train station was. Okay. And so she would drop me off at the train station like before i would hop on the train so that'd be like about 15 minutes okay drop me off in the morning about a 30 minute train ride up to orange from laguna gal which is where i was being dropped off Mm -hmm. and then about a 15 minute walk or if i was really ambitious little skateboard track up to campus so it was like a total about an hour one way but i was able to work on the train make it work and my mom's a boss so i was able to talk with her and have some good conversations on those rides yeah so that's sort of what my little routine was, and then sort of do the inverse on the way backwards.
2: Okay. Yep. And at Chapman, you followed your interest in science but uh, was a double major in biochemistry and molecular biology. You know, for uh, people that apply to medical school, it's a double major, but I, I it's uh, one it's
0: one degree. Yeah, it's one degree. Okay, you know, okay. I had a friend of mine. I'm not going to name him. Where. He was, like, really trying to get in some good med schools, and he, like, listed them as two different majors. And I'm like, nah, man, we're getting one BS for this. Come on. Like, this ain't (laughs) an adult major. But, you know, I didn't start as biochemistry. I actually started as kinesiology. Oh, yeah,
2: kinesiology. Yeah, because I was still
0: thinking PT, exercise science. Yes. And my first year, I had to take, because the the program was very pre-professional. Okay, got you. At Chapman. So a lot of exercise science programs, you know, you'll start off learning exercise science, kind of high-level stuff. Mm -hmm. The people at Chapman were very... Stern of like, hey, you want to apply these grad schools just so you know, these grad schools require you to take chemistry, Mm -hmm. biology, Mm -hmm. physics, calculus, Mm -hmm. at least a year of all those and and other stuff, too. And so they made us do that first. And I guess in this case, it might have been slightly to the chagrin of the kinesiology department, because that's what lost me. I I actually like those classes. Oh. More than like the intro kinesiology classes. Mm-hmm. Like I was taking this intro kinesiology class. It was cool, but it was too high level for me. Like I didn't really get to dig deep and understand like why are these things working the way they are. Where like in the biochemistry or like the chemistry classes, yeah, they were getting real deep. They okay. were getting crazy deep. And I was able to understand like it's not I like I didn't feel like I was memorizing. I feel like I was understanding. And I think that was what appealed to me about it. And then by the end of the year, I was like, you know, like I don't know if I want to do this PT thing. So what I decided to do... I wouldn't recommend this to everybody, but this was my way of deciding whether I wanted to stay in um, in biochemistry or kinesiology was the next year I took organic chemistry, which is supposed to be a weeder class yep, for like people that are sort of more like um, chemistry or biochemistry, things like that. Yep. And then I also took like a whole year of physiology and anatomy. And I basically said, okay, we're going to take these classes. If I like the organic chemistry more, this is a weeder class. If I somehow like this weeder class, I'll stick in it. And then if I, and I'll try to find a way to switch majors, but if I like the exercise science stuff. I'll switch, you know, I'll just keep my major. Okay. And so it just turned out that that first semester that I did that, the anatomy class, there's a lot of memorization. So it's kind of the same thing. The physiology, again, you know, there's more mechanism, but I still felt like I was kind of memorizing the mechanism. I still didn't really know like, okay, why exactly is this happening this way? We're like in the organic chemistry, like, I don't know what it was, but somehow this weird class became my favorite class. Mm-hmm. And I just like sunk into it. And I decided like after that, like, man, I love this chemistry stuff too much to just stay here. So that's why I switched to biochemistry. And it actually is funny. Later, I ended up becoming a TA for like organic okay, chemistry. Okay, okay. Initially, it was a weeder class so I was trying to decide a major on. And then I'd be, end up teaching it for like right. the next two years, which is really funny. You became the gardener.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. And so, being at Chapman, and you spend those years as a Panther, and then you go off to become your university's first Rhodes Scholar. Speaking of the lottery you were just talking about, if you were unaware of the educational lottery, you start hitting the jackpot at that point when it comes to getting a Rhodes scholarship. And mm-hmm. what was that process of even knowing what a Rhodes was and being a part of that community by the time that you graduated from Chapman? So
0: this is, to this day, I think still one of like the craziest stories in my life. You know, at Chapman, I there's this um term in Mandarin. I'm probably going to pronounce the tones wrong. I know the word, the way you say it. It's called longman, and it's Oh, longman. Okay, yeah. You know what it means, right? Yeah. Or like yeah, something yeah. along the lines. It's basically used in reference. My understanding is like the term refers to this thing yep. called a dragon gate. Yep. But there's a story behind it like this koi who's like swimming upstream and then at some point he like gets to the top of the waterfall and becomes a dragon. I don't know if Kors could actually swim up waterfalls. I'm gonna have this But there's sort of <laughs> I some that mythology was a salmon here of like that. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, this is this is how dragons came about. Is so that you have a koi, there's just a koi that's like tenacious enough to swim up a dragon, but then he also there's a level of like luck to it too. Yeah. So somehow you're lucky enough to somehow time it exactly right when yeah. you're passing over right when there's a little crevice of water not flowing down so you can get right above the waterfall so i think the Rhodes experience felt like that a lot for me because up to that point to be honest like up until the summer of my junior year i was not thinking mm. about Rhodes. i was actually interested in doing a fulbright um potentially um in israel at the time because computational oh. biology is like a big thing mm. like really like really strong there and my family at the time thought that I might've had some Jewish roots. So I thought that might've been interesting too. And
2: that would have been a research in Fulbright
0: Research, no, research yeah, would, would have been a research Fulbright okay, for a year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But when I started setting an application for that, I was talking with the fellowship person. They were like, you know, your CV is looking pretty strong. Like, do you want to consider some of these others? And I, I was sort of was offended at 1st like, what are you saying? Like I'm too good for a Fulbright. Like I want to go to Israel, you know, right, but right. she, she was really adamant. Like, you know, I think you should give these other ones a shot, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, Was Um, this Dr. Julie Bidmead? This is Julie Bidmead. Okay. Do you know
1: Julie? I don't know her personally. But we do our research. But we do our research.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you do your research. There you go. So, yes, this was Dr. Bidmead. And she sort of put this thing on my table and just, you know, she didn't force me. But she was like, you know, the words are oyster. You can give it a shot you want. And so, at the time, I started looking at this thing. And, you know, you can sort of get caught up in the aura of a lot of these things, right? And I was like, man, Rhodes, this this looks like kind of hard.
2: You know, like, it's like, in a good way or a bad way like
0: in both okay yeah both. Okay. it's like both like this could be really cool if I got this like it's almost impossible I get this but also it's like this is almost impossible I get this like <laughs> I might just be wasting you know right. like for instance at the time Rhodes would let us apply with like up to eight letters of recommendation and know my personality, I knew that I would max out on that. So I'm like, am I about to ask eight (laughs) professors to write a letter for me for this scholarship that I have pretty much no chance of getting? You know, so, Mm -hmm. and what ended up happening is that at the time I was very, uh, like proactive on LinkedIn and had this crazy idea, like what if I somehow reach out to someone who won a Rhodes from the previous year on LinkedIn, who I feel like is a fit, like okay. somehow like maybe some underdog from another school, right? Yeah, someone that and, wasn't like building, like, I don't know, micro gardens in
2: <laughs> Tunisia. Someone, the the someone Rhodes Madlib. Like, yeah, yeah, the Rhodes Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Someone, someone that I could feel like, man, if this person had a chance, maybe I have a chance, yeah, right? That. So I connected with this dude, Noah Barbieri, mm-hmm. and uh, I just had a hard talk with him, you know, and just asked him, like, dude, like this is – one thing I'm doing, my fellowship advisor thought I should apply for this, but I don't know. And once he just like dug deeper into my story, he was like, at first he was surprised I was taking the train for like two hours a day, you know, up to this point. Mm-hmm. Cause our CVs look pretty much identical. And he's like, you've been wasting two hours a day mm. on the train and not, you have the same CV as me. Like what the heck? I was like, yeah, yeah man, to, that's what I had to do. But you know, I didn't see it as a big thing, but he right. thought that was a big deal. And then, you know, I think I also was able to tell him a bit more about sort of family struggles. Like my parents had really a lot of financial hardships, you know, growing up and, uh, you know, it affected my family. My dad was depressed for like over a year. And, mm. you know, there's a point where he was considering suicide and mm. that really affected me too. And so once he just heard a lot of these things, he felt like, like a lot of people think that when you apply for something like a Rhodes, that like they're really just looking at your CV. And I think they do use that as a way to filter out. Mm. But I think in terms of like selecting scholars, I think they, in that point of the selection process, tend to gravitate people that have, you know, all these other, I don't want to say accomplishments, but all these other things beyond their CV. You know, I wasn't going to put on my CV that I was commuting two hours a day. Right. right. But like that was a part of my story that helped put some context into it. Yeah. And so
1: once he heard these connected things, the yeah.
0: dots, if you will.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Sounds familiar. Sir, I,
0: I have no idea where I heard that from. <laughs> no idea where I heard that from. So once he said that and he just said, I'm going to make you apply for the roads. I didn't even know what he was going to use to make me apply for it. Just him saying that I was like yes, sir. I'm starting my essays now. You know okay. what I mean? <laughs> so that's what started the journey. But you know, man, as far as like going back to the whole Longman story, like as far as actually crossing into, you know, actually getting it for me, that's actually where I really felt like I started to step more into my faith, mm-hmm. you know? So up until this point, I was, you know, born and raised in the church. Like I said, my grandpa was a pastor, okay. but to be honest, I didn't really have like a very serious relationship with God. Like mm-hmm. even during, you know, those times in college and you know, around that time, I just felt like God put on my heart, the book of Joshua from the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you guys have read the book of Joshua, but it's basically this whole story of like people of Israel having to step out by faith and things like that. And it's just like every time I open you know the Bible and start reading a passage, like I felt like God was just like screaming at me and kind of giving me the requisite faith that I needed to like actually step out and actually like going with confidence. So that's what I really felt like was the difference for me because I'm a very like naturally skeptical person, like being a scientist, you know, like <laughs> scientists. <laughs> Part and parcel of the job, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, being a good scientist, being rigorous, being skeptical, but unfortunately to make those kind of quantum leaps, yep. you know, in your career, you almost need to put that aside a bit. And that's mm. where, you know, I think like my faith really started to step into it. So yeah, that's, that's sort of, I think what allowed me to go in there with confidence. And again, To be honest, I don't think I was any better than any of the people that I interviewed with. I do just feel like God just gave me favor with it. And uh, now I sort of feel like the onus of like, all right, you open up this door. Like, I got to make sure to step through it, but I also got to make sure to like kind of be faithful with
1: the aftermath of that. And, you know, sort of having this context of like, you know, being a skeptic, being a scientist, but taking a larger view of what your responsibility to your community is, you know, we'll put it like that. You call yourself a humanitarian scientist in every bio that I could find of you. That seems connected to what you were just talking about. What does that mean to you?
0: It's an evolving definition for me, but where it started. So was something I didn't tell sort of, there's a lot of parallel stories happening,
1: yeah. you know, along mm-hmm. this
0: journey. One parallel story I didn't tell you guys about that also relates to this was that when I was a sophomore in college, my research mentor was diagnosed with a stage four cancer. Mm-hmm. And he passed away like nine months later. Whoa. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 He was really young too. He was like 37, 38. Uh, young yeah. dad. He looked healthy too. You know, yeah. he like. This is a stereotype with teachers that they have apples on their desk, but this guy literally had, had an apple. apple on his desk yeah. every single time I came to his office. right? And that for me was like the catalyst of wanting to become a researcher. But the motivation wasn't, um, it wasn't curiosity. You know, I think for me, that's coming over time. As I've learned more about science, I've realized how beautiful it is. But initially the impetus was like, I want to do this because I want to like save people's lives. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to like alleviate the suffering that I saw this man go through. And so I think that's where the humanitarian aspect of it comes into it. But again, like I said, I think it's an evolving thing. I think there's different ways it it manifests. Like I would say currently, I think the humanitarian aspect, the way that I'm playing into it more is finding time outside of science to do things that are more directly life-giving. I don't want to say the science is not life-giving. I just think that it's a... Uh, there are multiple steps in the way of from a discovery, making an impact in someone's life where there's other venues in my life where I feel like it's just a closer or smaller gap to jump, you know? So I think for me, that's the way that I try to play into it more is trying to find time to invest in writing poetry, or doing music or things like that. A lot of those things I use as venues to talk about my own struggles I've had with like mental health. And I feel yeah. like in many ways, not only am I helping maybe break the stigma around some of those things, but also I use it as like an outlet to talk about the things that have helped me cope with those things and almost yeah. use those experiences, not as like someone that's going to ruin your life, but as
1: a, like an opportunity for like deeper growth and depth. Do you think that's how you've pretty commonly felt about, about grief or challenge? Or do you think you had to work to get to a place where you figure out how to express and reflect on those things?
0: I'm going to tie this back in actually into some of the Oxford stuff. Cause okay. for me, I've realized it's actually part of my creative process, Okay, but I didn't realize this until I went through it, the first iteration. So talking about the roads. So I, I got the roads. I went to Oxford. And my first term at Oxford was, it was like a slow but steady spiral downward. So mm. <laughs> about a month before I flew out, I was about to work with this uh, researcher there. And he sent me an email just letting me know, like, I'm leaving the university to go full time with a company that I'm going wow. to start. And I was stoked for him, But I was like, all right, I'm a research student. So my entire degree is defined by working with a person. Mm-hmm. And I no longer have that person. So I wrote in my first term. I audited some classes, you know, and just chilling out. I'm still meeting a lot of people in the Rhodes community and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just took my time with finding a lab. Like I'll find time by the end of this term. And then, you know, I'll have, you know, plenty of time, you know, six or five other terms to sort of sort out my research. So I joined a lab. And then a month later, this is in the new year. So this is 2020. Mm -hmm. My PI tells me. Yeah, I'm also leaving the university. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I kid you not, bro. What are the odds? Uh, yeah, like lightning struck twice. So he was actually leaving to University in Manchester. The rationale was that his entire family was in York, okay. which is like an hour away, 30 minutes away from Manchester. Mm-hmm. And it's like four hours away from Oxford. Mm -hmm. So this dude was literally on a weekly basis, Sunday night, driving up to Oxford, living in like another apartment, working Monday through Friday in Oxford, and then going back to his family during the weekends. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Like living like, you know, two lives at once. And he just like was like, dude, I'm just done with this. And I'm like, I also understand, but this also. uh, like (laughs) This is not ideal. This is not ideal, right? So then I lose another term. And then by the time I joined a lab, about a month after that, COVID hits. COVID was really interesting because my housing fell through in the sense that the college that I was staying at, and out of grace for them, I'm not going to name it. But if you dig deep, you can find out What college I was staying at? Public records request. <laughs> yeah,
2: public. <laughs>
0: you, I'm sure you can find that information out there. But they wouldn't let me do laundry, and all the laundromats were closed because they didn't want to deal with people with coins or anything like that oh. during the pandemic. And I didn't have some like sweet connection in another college where I could like do laundry at someone else's college. So. I basically realized after two weeks that, yeah, this is not sustainable. I'm not going to go into details, but you can imagine your yeah. clothes being dirty and you're like, mm-hmm. you know, what am I going to wear <laughs>
1: tomorrow, right? <laughs> sure, yeah. So
0: I decided with some uh, housemates of mine to, or not housemates, they're actually other roads classmates to try to find another place. Okay. And we moved around for the next like maybe four months four yeah. or five months trying to find a place to live. The first place we moved into, we subletted, but then we sort of realized maybe a month into it that the people we were subletting, they're not allowed to sublet in their contract. And we felt super sketched out because these these people fled the country during COVID. We have no contingencies. Like now we're just subletting from these people that technically legally that we weren't aware of this, but now we were aware of it. Okay. And so then we had to work for like another two months to find a place. And obviously I'm involved in all this, right? So I'm involved in all these things. Long story short, it's like my research falls through. And at that time, research was like what I was using to define sure. myself. Yeah. I grew up as a kid like talking about the whole wrestling thing. To be honest, I did wrestling because to some aspect, I didn't like myself. I was trying to fix myself. And then after wrestling, science became that way that I defined myself. And so then when you're defined by this one thing in your life and it falls through, you have nothing.
1: You have nothing.
0: You have have what's left. And at that time, that's basically, you know, it's interesting with the Rhodes experience because during that brief two, three month period applying to it, I felt like God very closely speaking to me. But then after that, I kind of went back to just working all the time. It's not like I was reading my Bible regularly or anything Mm -hmm. like that, you know, just whatever. And then during that period, just in Oxford, I was, you know, I was depressed, you know, very skeptical. I was really like doubting, like even if God exists and things like that. And I kind of gave myself, I guess, the space to like really be like, all right, like, what do I actually believe? And like, why do I believe it? You know, and in that period is actually, funny enough, when I, <laughs> I started writing music again, that's what eventually birthed this okay, like, album yeah, yeah. that came out. Yeah, yeah, it basically was my way of coping with the depression. There was a lot of stuff that I was running away from years ago, personally, that I finally had art as a way to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And like at the end of that process, once I kind of brought all those things to God, it's like I was actually able to step into him. I would actually say like, for me personally, I would consider that's the time of my life that I actually like gave my life to Christ, particularly Before that, you know, again, I grew up in the church, but it was sort of more like a cultural thing than something that was actually personal for me. That was the time where I was like, no, I actually believe this. And I believe it because this is the only person in the entire universe who validates me simply for my existence and nothing else. You know, I felt like even myself, I validated myself by the way I looked, how smart I was, things like that. I really felt like God loved me simply because I was here, not because of anything else. And once I had that, it's almost like it allowed me to just move through all the grief mm-hmm. and like a sort of security. But it's interesting because, you know, then I, you know, eventually come out here to Stanford and I also have another kind of, I guess, yeah, like, like another bout of depression away, you know, yeah. you start grad school. I felt I feel like Oxford all over again, yeah. okay. kind of having things ripped under you. I'm not in a lab, you know, sleeping in later than I probably should yeah. and
1: being like, man, what's going on again? And you know, then- I-, I remember I put on an open mic session the first quarter that yeah, you were here, I think. Yeah. And I remember you came and you read a poem. Mm-hmm. You read a poem about mm-hmm. about your transition to Stanford yeah, and kind of the yeah. difficulties there. So yeah. I kind of I, I noticed that you were reflecting and expressing in that moment that kind of difficulty.
0: Well and again, I think for me it what allowed me to start moving through that process of grief again. Yeah. Was actually poetry. And yeah. for me, the music is also a form of poetry. I would say largely it's all under the umbrella of poetry. And then music for me is a side in. You know, not everyone's like that. For some people, you know, they're more into music, for like the instrumentals. Mm-hmm. You know, think of like EDM artists; they're not writing poems with bangers in the club. You don't have to poems. Maybe, maybe they are. Maybe there's some out there, you know, spitting over their tracks or something. But most people are just, you know, they're trying to make beats or whatever. So, but no, for me, it was really a poetic thing. And then as I did that, you know, and that's a piece that I'm working on now. That poem that I wrote is like a larger piece of something I'm working on right now. Okay. That allowed me then to also come out of that. And so the way I've seen it, depression runs in my family. I think to some extent, I'll always be kind of going around these cycles in my life, mm-hmm. you know, of like coming out of it and then entering another process of it. But I I don't look at it anything like I used to look at it as something that was like this really big hindrance to my life. Yeah. You know, something that really whatever. When I actually realized, I think for me, when I enter stage depression, it's more like a, it's like my soul recognizes a truth that my mind has not come to terms with yet. That's what happens every time I get depressed. And so now I know how to resolve that incongruency. Now I'm just like, okay, there's something that I know deep down that I don't want to admit yet. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm depressed. Let me dig into that. And as a process of that, that's where these art pieces emerge. Okay, It sort of initially became just a, a byproduct of me trying to live in the world, but it's sort of become like a bit redemptive. And then every single one of those cycles, I feel like I also grow closer to God. I feel mm-hmm. like I i don't want to say I level up because it's not like God is like, you know, leveling up people or whatever. But I do feel like I mature more. Mm-hmm. You know, I am mature more spiritually to just like another level. And I now look at it as like this kind of weird way of thinking about. It. But like the next time I get depressed, I actually think I'm a little excited about it because I'm like, dude, that means that like some other great piece is going to come out of this. Mm-hmm. That means that I'm going to grow that much deeper into who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of looking at it as you know, some hindrance, you know, looking at it more as just like, this is part of who I am. And Sometimes I get depressed just because I'm actually coping with a level of sadness that I think some people just don't want to cope with at that moment. And instead of trying to shove it down, I've learned to more kind of create space for that and right. sort of
2: try to see where it leads me. It's a really moving reflection on a number of fronts. I think first and foremost, it's because of the imagery of fellowships and programs like Rhodes and Knight-Hennessy mm. and the inherent joy that people just assume mm. being a part of those experiences yeah. includes yeah. when people don't see just how difficult it can be to be a grad school student, to be yeah. a grad school student. Oh, yeah. At a place like Stanford to have all these opportunities, programs, events thrust your way, and trying to swim through all that yeah. And, yeah. and figure out what matters most. That's first, the second is the idea that depression is not something that you remove from your life it's something you learn to deal with. Yeah. I think yeah it's a very nuanced take on the reality of what it's like to be human and to have yeah and to have things that affect you in your life. I mean, I forget who in the Mentioned Joshua, I believe, I forgot who in the Bible, I think they said, was technically like clinically depressed. Was it David? It might have been David. If you read some of his Psalms, he definitely had some sad boy vibes in there. Yeah, yeah for big sure. Time. Big yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's some aspect of, is like, what does it mean to just cope with these things yeah. that we yeah. struggle with? Yeah. I think that's quite unique. And the third thing I would say is actually related to your imaginal world statement about I think sometimes you can interpret your imagined world statement about work being art as the work that you do professionally or the work that you do in affiliation with an institution. Mm. But I think a lot of what you've articulated is about the work being about the work you do as an individual and the art that comes out of that, how overarching that is in understanding sort of your purpose in life and how you want to navigate it. So why I want to thank you for sharing that. I really think that's a very powerful reflection. And I find that, and I hope that folks who are listening maybe struggle with depression can find some sense of solace in some of the ideas you're talking about in terms of yeah. getting help and yeah. making sure you know how to navigate those spaces, even recognizing when that happens. Absolutely. To that point, I want to get your thoughts more squarely on the Imagine the World statement. Is how do you think about the connection between work and art and how... How our world might be improved by the fact that people are viewing their work as art and treating it with the tender and care that it should, if that is the case. For me, I think the statement is
0: partly rooted, I think, again, in my worldview as a Christian, and in this case, seeing people as beings made in the image of God, mm-hmm. and that means different things to different people. For me, when the Bible starts off, what is God doing? He's creating. God's creative. So what does that mean for us as humans? That means that we also are creative. I think in every single one of us, there's an artist to some extent, you know? And art looks very different for everybody, you know? Like, for instance, I'm not a painter, but I have different canvases in my life Mm -hmm. that I paint on sort of metaphorically. And I think right now in society, again, I'm not just gonna use a sort of broad statement to say that every single mental health issue is because people don't have opportunities to be creative, but I actually think that some of it could be in part due to that. I'm thinking of people being on the internet all day or social media or, you know, just consuming. Mm -hmm. We're always consuming, 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 consuming. But then we give ourselves little to almost no time to then output. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, our minds are information processing systems. Just like a computer, you input information and it can output information. But if you don't have any output going on, Your mind just gets flooded with just information and thoughts that has nothing to do with it. And then there's incongruencies that arise that aren't reconciled. And that's what starts to create this dissonance that can then lead to some of these things. You know, again, I'm not saying this is the case for every single one of those. Like for me personally, I definitely know it's something that runs in my family. So even if I was living the perfect life, I know I'd probably have seasons where, you know, struggle with things like that. But I did recognize that like, man, actually being creative is actually like a huge solace. Creativity is also a way that you can serve others. Imagine a world where work is art. Part of it is hoping to see a world where people are willing to step into their creativity more. But then for me, the way that I think about it is like, again, about going back to the scientist thing is like mm-hmm. practically, mm-hmm. How are we actually going to get to that world? Mm-hmm. And I think that that ties into sort of what I'm trying to do now as a researcher. So a lot of what I've seen, at least in science, is like, again, I love science in the deepest cell in my body. You know what I mean? Like it's part of who I am. And yet at the same time, I do recognize that the way that science is currently constructed, scientists don't really have a lot of time to do poetry, Mm -hmm. to make music, to do art. We're sort of constrained by the system to just produce and produce at a very high level consistently. And it doesn't leave much room for else in the day. And so a lot of what I'm actively thinking about, I work in a machine learning lab. So what Mm -hmm. I've thought about is like, what are ways that we can automate mundane tasks that scientists do in the lab? So they can have that same output, you know, that can keep them afloat in the job market, but then also save time in their day so they can have more time to do creative stuff, to sleep, you know, scientists need to sleep too, like anybody else, you know, and things like that. So that's sort of also the way that I'm thinking about it is like also thinking about like, what are the things that I can do as a machine learning researcher, as an AI researcher to create tools that can make scientists' lives easier so then they can have opportunities to not only let more of their work during the day, be that creative, artistic, you know, the things that you can't offset to an algorithm, things that they do. So their work as a scientist is more creative, but then also giving them space in the day where they can do other creative pursuits that are fulfilling to them. That is not just the work. If they so choose. So, you know, some people, they just love doing science all day. That's cool. If they're healthy, they're fine. Mental state's cool. Like I'm cool with it, but I think unfortunately a lot of people, that's not the case. And so I'm trying to think of actively like, how can I serve this community that I love so much and way of trying to create tools that can automate things and just keep more
1: people in science and people doing more creative work in the long-term. So since you've arrived at Stanford and are sort of pursuing this striking a balance even just between these two things, this work and this art, how has that manifested for you in the Knight-Hennessy community?
0: You know, I think a lot of this desire for like artistry, you know, I felt like it was a bit revived. When I first came out here tonight, mm-hmm. okay, CS yeah, Stanford. You know, for some context, I worked in industry for the year before, and unfortunately, my industry job I had, you know, like a typical nine to five, nine to six. You mm-hmm. know, sort of had a very fixed schedule, didn't have really much time for anything else besides sleeping, working out, doing my thing. Yeah. When I first came here, like I was surprised. I mean, my first year here, dude, I did like two retreats. I was like. First, I was like, wait, <laughs> I'm spending two weekends, two old weekends. That's the time I could be doing P sets, I could be doing, yeah. you know, coding, whatever. <laughs> and I'm going out to Santa Cruz. Like, come on. Like, like, like what are we doing here? I first was kind of like, man, I feel like,
1: you know, no offense. I feel kind of lazy, just like yeah. kind of going to all these retreats. You that's know? so interesting because it's so antithetical. That feeling is so antithetical to the balance you were just talking it, about.
0: It, it, no, it is. Yeah. Well, this is this is part of my development. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of right? course. Yeah. But but I sort of realized, like, wow, Knight Hennessy, they're literally in many ways, forcefully creating space in our schedules to take us away from our work yeah. and to help us think bigger picture and yes. things like that. I've realized how much I grow exponentially when I create time okay. outside of yeah. just doing research to be creative, to do things, poetry or music, or th- you know, other things. And I think for me, I've seen that growth in my life as I've been here, like, you know, over the past year. And I've been like, dude, like if I'm just consistent with this, I think the kind of science I'll be doing like 20 years from now will be way better. Yeah. Just by the fact that I'm taking a little bit of time away from, it's sort of counterintuitive. You're like taking time away from the lab to grow, but by the fact that you're growing, you're actually going to be able to stay in the game longer and be much better skilled wise, intellectual wise, things like that. You know, because all good science starts with good ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think if you cultivate your mind in such a way and have ways of growing intellectually, you can actually engineer a system in such a way where you can consistently generate ideas and know that you're going to consistently generate better ideas across time. Mm-hmm. And as long as you have enough space in your schedule to act upon the best of those ideas consistently, yeah. you know, that's like an algorithm to just becoming a, the best scientist you could be yeah. for as yeah. long as possible. Yeah. So, so yeah, once I realized the value of that and seeing how night and night had to see sort of forcing on that at me initially, mm-hmm. but then after that, me actually intentionally creating space.
1: You started to welcome it.
0: Started to welcome it. Yeah. yeah. I started to welcome it. And I started to see, you know, even during these retreats, again, I call on a two day retreat and then I come back and my, vision of the world is like now shifted yeah. you know completely or like you know you put in hd i don't know the exact visual metaphor is best for this case but like yeah you know it's just you see completely differently you see completely differently and then you can start to recognize problems in it differently you can start to find new solutions to it that previous angles didn't allow you yeah. and as i've seen that i've just recognized the value of it and i've realized as a leader sometimes you have to be the first person to do something differently. Mm. And I think for me that I feel a bit of the onus, like, you know, yeah, it's not normal for you to create time, in your schedule to do these creative things, you know, that, that aren't as productive as other things. But right. again, I think every single one of us have to find a process yeah. that we know works for us the best. Right. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you may be the first person doing a process like that. Yeah. Right. So I think for me, seeing Knight Hennessy, seeing the values embodied, body, you know, being, a, I'm trying to think the exact vernacular they use, like being <laughs> um, like independence of thought.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, the, sure. is that, yeah, that the yeah. way they call it? Yeah, independence yeah, of yeah, the king leadership framework, right? Yeah, yeah. What, yeah, what, what is it? Yeah. Civic mindset, independence of thought. Yeah, hey man, don't put me on spot. <laughs> <laughs>
1: there's a third uh, but yeah, one. There, in there. there's a. Yeah, what's yeah. the third one?
2: Yeah, it's independence, civic of thought. mindset, purposeful leadership. Purposeful leadership. It is purposeful leadership. leadership. Purposeful oh, leadership. Yeah, okay. good job. Yeah, well, yeah, well get done. Those points for that. Yeah, I mean, you win the quiz. This would be a hilarious take to do. Like on social media, if you just went around asking, so what are the what are the <laughs> <laughs>
0: what are <laughs> the
2: criteria for like oh, oh, you know? I, <laughs> I actually
0: think I got a leg up on that because I actually interviewed for Hennessy twice. Oh, um, yeah, I interviewed for this twice. So I I either yeah. reviewed okay. this whole thing twice. Okay. So, yeah, uh, so I definitely think I unfortunately have a leg. You know, yeah, for better for us have a leg up on. Yeah, that. yeah,
1: and you know actually that makes you pretty well suited to sort of the next the last couple of rounds of questions Let's we have, we're, we're, sort of, yeah, yeah. we're sort of gliding into the into the home stretch yeah, of, of this yeah, time yeah, with yeah, us yeah, now. Yeah, and yeah. something we like to ask everybody that comes on the show is to provide some advice to anyone who's thinking of applying to Knight Hennessy. Like you said, you've done it a couple of times. What would you say to someone who, who is considering applying to this program? You know, for me, I actually think, and maybe it's just me personally, the area
0: that I needed to grow the most in, when I came into an But I feel like when I applied to I felt like the civic mindset thing was definitely there. Time back to the humanitarian thing we talked about. Purpose leadership, you know, I don't think I've had too much issue identifying what I want to do and how I want to lead in that way. But I always felt like the independence of thought thing was real tough for me. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that is, I personally don't think it's commonly employed enough when people apply for programs like these. I think they're always looking for, you know, what do they want? That's always the question Like, Sure. What yeah. did my Hennessy want? Yeah. What did they want to hear? How do I tickle their ears? What's the golden ticket? Yeah. yeah. What's the golden ticket? And the reality, it's sort of the thing you don't want to hear. And it's also probably cliche, but I think it is true. Like the whole like be yourself thing. Yeah. But I think even to an extent that's maybe a little, uh, like, I think the second time I applied, I was myself to an extent that I would consider potentially slightly bombastic. Hmm. <laughs> okay. But what do you mean by that? All my, uh, improbable facts were puns. Oh, okay. Every single one of them. Okay. I made sure like these are all going to be dialed in this, or some ridiculous. D- Actually, it was like a mix it of is. dad jokes and like just dry humor. <laughs> right. Yeah. Living in England will, will do that too. Yeah. You know, the yeah. humor's very dry there. But yeah, it was almost to the point where I was like, the information here is kind of interesting. I'm just kind of making a joke out of this part of the section. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, you can't see that part of me in any other part of the application. And that is yeah. part of my personality. So I thought it was important, but yeah, I mean, there were other things too, where I just kind of like, you know, the way I wrote my personal statement, Most applications, I have people look at my essays. I decide, you know what? I like this essay. I don't even want to look at it. I'm just going to send it off. Just the way it is. I want it to be just raw thoughts just from this one noggin. I think that that actually went a long way because I feel like the first time I applied, I don't know if this factored much into how things worked out that year. But the first time I applied, I felt like I was a bit... I don't wanna say people pleasing, but I was, yeah, kind of looking for like, what do they want?
1: Yeah. They want? Yeah. Yeah. It's captivating, it's, It is yeah, captivating. Yeah. It's a
0: very human thing, right? And then the second time I applied, I was like, dude, I already didn't get this the first year. Like, I'm just applying for it because <laughs> I'm still eligible, you know? Yeah. And then I got it that year. And I, I remember the call I got from John Hennessy was just, I mean, it was awesome, just obviously getting a call yeah. from John Hennessy. But after that call, I was like, what the heck? This was the one fellowship that I literally didn't like try hard in this year. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, Man, that resonates dude. with
1: me so much because, funnily enough, so, I applied to Rhodes in the same yeah. year that I applied to 9 did not get it, and it resulted in me realizing, oh, you know, these things happen, you apply for these things like this, but yeah. then life goes on, because, you know, that didn't work out, and I realized, oh, wait, but, you know, my life doesn't end. Yeah. It goes on, and, and what I want to do with my life and the people in my life and oh. the things that are bringing me joy are all still there. Yeah. Wow. And then I get this opportunity for Nye Hennessy and all of a sudden it's like, oh, you know, what are the stakes here? The stakes are just be yourself. And I think you're hitting on something, Mm. you know, everybody that comes on this podcast, I think each person has probably said some variant of be yourself in the application. And it's so true. But another aspect of that is being comfortable with yourself, not just being yourself, but being comfortable with yourself. Absolutely, You're speaking of it as if it is like, you know, not trying hard, but that's not really what it is. You just were able to exist.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think actually, you know, I've actually learned this as I've written poetry. I think my best poetry comes from like the unfiltered stream of consciousness stuff. Yeah, sure. You know, when I don't put filters on what I say, obviously there's certain things you shouldn't say in a fellowship app. That's pretty common sense. Like, you got you guys My are- Name right them. What, those are. what, yeah. No, no, no. no I'm not going to go to- There are probably things we probably should say on this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not going to go to details.
2: Part things you don't want on KHS Airways. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, but you already know those things. Like, beyond those things, I mean, and honestly, if you really are concerned, just write your essays and then filter for that at the end. You know, just make sure it's G-rated it at the end, whatever, but like at the end of the day, I mean, I think the stream of consciousness stuff goes a long way. I think the first essay you write, sometimes, even though it may not be the pretty sounding essay, maybe you need to fine tune a little bit, yeah. but sometimes what you're saying is actually more true than anything right after that. Yeah. You know, because yeah. after you start filtering what you just wrote and then filtering and filtering that, sometimes you get so far away from what you're trying to say initially. Or what really I should say is, not even what you're trying to say initially, what's really lying under, yeah. like down underneath. Because I think that's ultimately what these fellowship applications should be. Is trying to Almost peel back layers like an onion. You know what yeah, I mean? Yep. Or an ogre. Or an ogre. Yes. Uh, <laughs> okay. That was
2: a good. I knew. I, that, that was a good.
0: I, I was going to make a Shrek joke, but you so me to the was, point. I did. I was, I did. Oh, was, I was over Shrek eager. Shirt. I'm so sorry.
2: Shirt. Shrek is also one of the only animated movies to have a solid four movie run. But either way, in my Cars and Toy Story. I guess Toy Story is probably four. Wait, what would you say? I'm not a fan Shrek 2. I thought Shrek 2 was all right. I'm just saying, so the animated movies, it's really hard to get four. <laughs> <laughs> that are like they're serviceable I think mm. I think Kung Fu Panda is gonna strike out on this fourth one because mm. really? I don't think the Furious Five are Poe looking jacked or something well, like, no, okay. I, I, I don't think the Furious Five are featured I think that's kind of weird anyway yeah. that this is totally an aside but yeah, yeah. Mm. speaking of the improbable facts discussion as we close out this episode we love to hear you talk about an improbable fact that you could share and I would just say before we get into the improbable facts. I appreciate your feedback to people who are applying. Ashwin also yeah. basically invited a similar things when he just applied with two weeks left to the application. It was yeah. like, I didn't have time to Grind filter. Or, yeah, yeah, I just, yeah. I, 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 I just submitted it. Uh, and I'm also a Rose reject two times over. So it's, it's nice yeah. to know that I have a fellow of company here. My yeah. There you go. But yeah. improbable facts, what you got?
0: Well, one improbable fact I was going to say, and I sort of actually said this, was that all of them were dad jokes or like close to it. Yeah. You know, but I'll give you very specific dad jokes. So my favorite that I remember is uh, I said, <laughs> I don't know if we were to get to this uh, laughing. For me, I know a good joke, you know, probably it's worse with the delivery. But for me, a good joke is like one that makes me laugh before I even start saying it. Okay. So this one is, um, <laughs> okay. It says, I beatbox, but I don't, <laughs> Box beats nor engage in. <laughs> Sorry, get it together. And <laughs> no, and no, no. nor do I engage in combat sport with any
2: other root vegetable. Oh, oh, wow, yeah.
1: <sighs> Let's just take a minute
2: there. Yeah, I'm trying to add that. that was, I'd be box, I,
0: I, I got it. I don't it. Be- box beats, nor do I engage in combat sports. Oh, okay. Right. right. All right, gotcha. Yeah,
2: yeah. Beats.
1: Got it. Okay, yep. yeah. Sorry.
2: Without the spelling, I was... Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm visual yeah, spatial. Two, 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 there's
1: layers. That's the, there's yeah. layers. There's yeah. layers to that yeah. one. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> Actually, is Onion a root Vegetable?
2: Bro, I, I don't... Want...
1: <laughs> there's another layer in there. Oh, my oh, gosh. My I didn't even think God. about
2: that when I wrote that. Woo! <laughs> Louie and I sitting here in thinking, stunned I silence. I
0: potatoes, but I guess onions are also vegetables, yeah. Maybe. Yeah, there's least four I'm, layers in there. Yeah,
2: we are yeah. we are far beyond my, my knowledge of, of <laughs> horticulture at this point. Although it might have to follow with Emily Russell to see how her micro, grind, her <laughs> right. micro gardens are going. <laughs> right. But anyway, look, Vidal, it's been great. Thank you so much for being on the pod today. It's been such a pleasure to yeah, have thanks, you. Thanks, man. And of course. Well, with that, we'll leave it here. But thank you again for sharing your story and for being who you are. You mentioned a lot of the stuff you struggle with, and... This is sort of mentioned in Austin's episode in terms of him being someone who lights up a room. But even mm-hmm. from first day of being in our cohort of it all, you've been somebody who shines bright in the cohort oh, with the Pompadour, that's what it's called? Pompadour. Pompadour, Pompadour. Pompadour or, <laughs> or the buzz cut man. So you've, yeah, been, yeah. you've been a steady fixture of light in the community. So oh, I appreciate,
0: appreciate you, G. That means a lot. That means yeah, a lot. Of course. Yeah. And for the people that are listening, if you're thinking of applying, just do it you'll think yourself Nike oh look at that let do it don't let, let, let it, your dreams feature <laughs> <laughs> yeah Phil Nike can I get a pair of Nike anyways you know, another time <laughs> a little flex <laughs> alright that's it,
2: that's it. alright man appreciate you coming take care
1: thank you for joining us for this episode of Imagine a World Where we hear from inspiring members of the KHS community who are making significant contributions in their respective fields, challenging the status quo, and pushing the boundaries of what is possible
2: as they imagine the world they want to see. This podcast is sponsored by Knight Tennessee Scholars at Stanford University, a multidisciplinary, multicultural graduate fellowship program providing scholars with financial support to pursue graduate studies at Stanford while helping equip them to be visionary, courageous, and collaborative leaders who address complex challenges facing the world. Follow us on social media at Knight Hennessy and visit our website at kh.stanford.edu to learn more about the program and our community.